The U.S. Energy Department released a report last week concluding that COVID was caused by a lab leak in Wuhan, inside of China. This is part of a larger allegation by the United States government, by U.S. politicians, that COVID is caused by China or by China's failures. At the same time, the U.S. Cold War, if that's what it is, against China heats up. Today, we're going to talk about that. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy or rely on this show, become a subscriber, become a patron. Go to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking with K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist. He's an organizer with Pivot to Peace. He's also a scholar on geopolitics of Asia and a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. K.J. No, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. KJ, the media, as I said in the beginning of this show at the introduction, the media made a big story out of the Energy Department report that concluded that China or a a lab, a Chinese scientific medical lab was responsible for a leak, which they say was the cause for COVID, the global pandemic. That was the report. In many ways, this wasn't really, KJ, about science or scientific inquiry. It was largely about the media, about media presentation, and about perceptions. Because after these big headlines, dramatic headlines, sensational headlines, when you actually read the report, the report by the Energy Department says that they have, quote, low confidence, close quote, in their own report. First of all, let's talk about the story, the media, the way the media handled it, and what exactly is low confidence? You know, I think the first thing to point out here is that this forms yet another element of a global propaganda effort to paint China as an existential threat, that is, a WMD-level threat, a biological WMD-level threat. And all of this is in order to create consent for war. It's manufacturing consent for war. I believe that we are very, very close to war. And I say that because there is no other way to explain such extraordinary, extraordinary volume, repetition, persistence, and absurdity of these propaganda allegations leveled against China. And so, you know, once again, just to go over it, you know, that China is a nuclear existential threat. We see this being trotted out. We see that China is a a global warming threat, again, an existential threat. It's a 
WMD biological threat. It is a genocidal threat to everybody. It's a political threat to human rights, democracy, freedom, and rule of law. And it is an economic threat in that it's colonizing the planet and destroying the U.S. economy. So this new, you know, rehashing of this COVID propaganda fits within this larger context of this global barrage of propaganda, which is designed to have something to appeal to everybody on every political spectrum. And so once we understand that, then we can also point out that it is, as you point out, a completely political and manufactured you know, story. The first signal is that it was put out by Michael Gordon, who, if you remember, was responsible for the original WMD hoax that got us into the Iraq war. This was what he wrote with Judith Miller at the New York Times. And so the same actors, the same people using the same types of manufactured story are coming back to this. But once again, we have to look at the facts. You know, there is no evidence that links any kind of lab leak to the COVID outbreak. The only thing that they have is, you know, an accident of a proximity of geography, and that does not constitute any kind of proof. We know from, you know, good studies, serious investigations, that the most likely cause of COVID was zoonotic transfer, possibly related to a wet market. But the fact that the DOE, which, you know, once again, does not have an expertise in, you know, in epidemics. It's not a, that's not its area of expertise. It, its expertise is in nuclear weapons testing. The fact that they came out with a statement, which they bury, of low confidence shows that there's a real kind of digging, a, an attempt to create, once again, this insinuation that China is somehow responsible for global WMD-level threats, that it is responsible for the death of millions of people around the world. Just to go back over the science, you know, originally the allegation was that it was some kind of engineered virus. And of course, if you want to assert that, you have to show what the precursor was, what was the progenitor from which it was engineered from. That has never been shown. Then there was the argument by Sam Husseini that it was, you know, gain of function, serial passage, engineered to high traces of its engineering. But once again, you need to show a precursor. You need to show the progenitor, because if you do conventional serial passaging, you're talking about a Manhattan level, you know, project that lasts for 30 to 50 years in order to get it from the closest RATG13 virus, which we now know is completely unrelated. And then you have people like Alina Chan, who have said that it was pre-adapted. We know that it's not. It's pantropic and it affects a wide variety of animals and it has continued to evolve. And then there's all this other stuff about, you know, sick lab leakers that has been shown to be absurd, that it was some kind of uh, live leak that they already had. But once again, we have to bring some common sense to this. If it's already in nature, you cannot leak it out to nature because it's already there. 
And there are hundreds of millions of people who have very frequent interactions with coronavirus carrying bats. You know, bats are about 20% of all mammalian species and hundreds of millions of people have contacts with them all the time. And so the most likely theory is that it was the natural zoonotic transfer, which happens all the time. It's the route that we have shown has been the case for almost all viruses. And so I think that against this extraordinary scientific understanding, we have this very, very marginal political conspiracy theory, which is once again being put out into the limelight by some very, very dubious individuals And again, as you point out, it is completely and totally for political ends in order to create the sense that China is a villain and that it poses some sort of existential threat. I'm glad you mentioned that the author of most of, well, some of the most prominent articles about this story, the low confidence report of the Energy Department that there was a lab leak in Wuhan where the world first learned of COVID at the beginning of 2020, that the author was Michael Gordon. Now, we're coming up, KJ, in a couple of days on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. Tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers and troops, Marines, either died or had life-changing injuries. The suicide rate of those who participated on the U.S. side in the war, that war and the Afghan war, It's off the charts, record levels of suicide for U.S. veterans. In other words, a great amount of human suffering, death and destruction. And that war was based on lies. The war was sold to the American people on the premise that Iraq was a threat. It was a threat to its neighbors and it was a threat to Americans. And that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and that, as Condoleezza Rice and other members of the Bush administration said, you know, using September 11th, 2001 attacks as a backdrop, the next attack might be a mushroom cloud, meaning a nuclear weapon, a weapon of mass destruction. And there was no evidence of that. I was personally deeply involved in mobilizing opposition to the U.S. sanctions on Iraq that were killing so many Iraqis, 8,000 people a month, according to the U.N. We were bringing medicine to Iraq, but we were also writing about Iraq. We were paying attention to Iraq. I was working with Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General, who was doing reports to the United Nations Security Council every two months, you know, for years about the impact of U.S. policy on Iraq. And it was quite clear that Iraq was hobbled It was weak. It was surrounded. Its people were dying from economic sanctions, and it did not have weapons of mass destruction. The Iraqis had been targeted for 13,000 different, independently different weapons inspections by UN weapons inspection teams. You know, like they just showed up and inspected all over the country, 13,000, and they couldn't find any weapons of mass destruction, at least for the last five or six years. So it took people like Michael Gordon and Judith Miller in the New York Times, in the paper of record, who in September 2002 started writing, there is evidence, there is clearly evidence that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. And so because it was the New York Times, the people thought, oh, that's the paper of record. It must be true. Well, it turned out not to be true. Hundreds of thousands died. Now Michael Gordon, instead of being driven out of journalism for such destructive lies, 
He's writing these articles that China's responsible and a Chinese lab is responsible for COVID. And he also had a major article three days later in the same newspaper, in the Wall Street Journal. It's the beginning of a series by Michael Gordon. And the article is titled something like, I'm paraphrasing, why the U.S. isn't yet ready for major power conflict, like why the U.S. is behind the, the curve. We have to get ready for major power conflict. I mean, when you think of the, the lies, the deception and the human suffering, the attendant human suffering caused by this kind of so-called journalism and the fact that Gordon can be right at it again. And, you know, the other thing, in addition to all of that, KJ, I want to just mention, there are people in the U.S. body politic who are COVID denialists. Then there are those who are not COVID denialists, but they want to blame China as if China is responsible. There's these different currents within politics. And I noticed that when this energy department with low confidence, again, you'd have to read deep into the article to see that, was released, not only did the Wall Street Journal and Michael Gordon make front page out of it, but all of these other people said, see, this proves that this whole thing was a, was a government construct. There was this great conspiracy. And maybe Anthony Fauci and the NIH working with the Chinese in a lab in Wuhan, they're responsible. This, this kind of proves it. And so that became the story for a couple of weeks. Now we've moved on to other stories like the Silicon Valley bank collapse. So it's kind of out of the headlines at the moment. But this is the kind of sort of opinion molding that really leaves a very powerful residue, creating at the minimum fear and hatred for China. The fear and hatred is absolutely over the top. And I would say that, you know, one of the reasons why I say that we are so close to war is not simply, you know, the extremity and the volume of this propaganda or hate mongering against China, but also that we see that people on the street, Asians are being attacked almost, you know, hourly, you know, this extraordinary level of hatred against Asian and East Asians in general. I think that lets us know that, you know, that the pan is sizzling hot. It's we're so ready for war. That level of demonization has pervaded, you know, the general population. You cannot, you know, put out messages of wholesale messages of hate mongering against a nation without some of that trickling down onto a retail level. You cannot talk about waging war over there without sending the message that it's okay to attack people over here as well. KJ, let me ask you, given that, you know, in 1918, there was a big epidemic, influenza, and the estimates are 50 million people died. I don't think there was any vaccination. It was called the Spanish flu, but it wasn't the Spanish flu. It's just that's where that virus, that influenza was first detected. There was a lot of feeling afterwards in many of the scientific studies that it didn't originate in Spain. It really originated in World War I. All the countries of Europe were at war. Then the U.S. joined the war in 1917. And the troops are in close quarters, unsanitary conditions. They're sort of living outdoors. Also, they're you know, living close to livestock and to other animals. This is, again, I don't know if this was also an issue of zoonotic transmission from animals to humans. 
But it wasn't the Spanish influenza. It was really the concentration of people in the middle of war. Troops, in fact, become the conveyors of all kinds of viruses. You know, the U.S. has a thousand or 800, perhaps, military bases all over the world. U.S. troops are going everywhere. They don't go through the normal means. It's not because they get a visa and they show up someplace. The U.S. just has all of these bilateral arrangements where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops are constantly moving in and out of rotation in bases around the world. Anyway, I'm not trying to say U.S. military forces cause COVID because we don't know what caused COVID. But my point is that in the case of the 1918 pandemic, I think it took decades, perhaps, to determine what was the actual origin of the virus. And why do we actually care outside of medical or public health issues about what the origin of a particular virus is? Because once it exists, once it's going through the human family and not really distinguishing between people from this part of the world or that part of the world, it makes everybody sick or even die. Like, it seems to me this focus on the origin is also just profoundly and obviously political. Yes, I would agree with that. I think it's profoundly political. I mean, let's notice that there are clearly viruses, epidemics that are zoonotic, that we have never found which animal is responsible. I mean, smallpox is one. We largely surmise that it was a zoonotic virus, but we don't know. And this is often the case. The origins are less important than to understand the mechanisms of transmission and dispersion. If we understand those vectors, then we can take appropriate preventative measures. And you're absolutely correct. The best evidence regarding the Spanish flu signals that it probably came out of a military base in Kansas, which had close proximity to swine farms near there. And then because of the conditions under which the troops trained and interacted, the kind of close quarters and the poor, you know, sanitation, that they transmitted it to the trenches of World War I, where it actually ended up killing more people than the war itself. And I have published in peer-reviewed journals some of the factors that make this likely, that epidemics are very often spread by troops. Some of the greatest epidemics have been spread by troops simply because of the nature of military training and the nature of military transportation and movement, but also in particular for the United States, the fact that it has carte blanche to travel all over the world without going through public health controls, without even needing visas, the status of forces agreements that are very similar to diplomatic immunity that allow them to go in and out of a country and to ignore national public health measures. This could be seen as a global public health threat. And it's actually been mentioned, you know, by the WHO. But again, the U.S. chooses to exempt itself just as it chooses to exempt itself from, for example, military CO2 emissions. So I think this is a very, very important part of the picture, and we do need to address it. But, you know, coming back to your original point, that this idea that we have, you know, a WMD level threat from COVID 
And, you know, once again, Michael Gordon, he's an individual who at the very least should be facing the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity in the way that he wantonly spread these lies against Iraq and was the immediate trigger, you know, his article on aluminum tubes. I mean, I think that was directly quoted as the, you know, cause or the casus belli. I think that speaks to how deeply corrupt the media ecosphere is, how deeply corrupt the U.S. journalistic system is, that you can tell the most absurd lies create the most absurd and enduring pain and suffering on the planet. And what you will do is you will continue to be quoted and you will be continue to be promoted and you will continue to have a successful career. I think that speaks to, you know, some profound and extraordinary wrongs inside the American system, as opposed to Seymour Hirsch, who can no longer get published anywhere. Right. He has to publish on Substack. And so I think that's, you know, just a general statement. But once again, let's come back to the facts about the lab leak. You know, this was a BSL-4 lab that was built over a 15-year period. I mean, this is a very complex structure to build. It's like putting a bank safe inside a submarine, inside, you know, a fortified building. And it is such extraordinary security that is applied there. It was built by the French. It was co-operated by the French. There were multiple Western researchers working there. And a lot of the direct COVID funding came out of U.S. funding. And so when you want to allege that somehow that China was responsible, you have to accept the fact that this was, you know, a co operated facility and that it received U.S. funding. Nobody wants to deal with those contradictions. And so this is just this general blast of lies that you just say somehow China is, you know, responsible. You don't get into any of the details and you try and gloss over the contradiction so that you both assert on the one hand that, you know, COVID is absolutely harmless. And at the same time, you try to assert that it is also a deadly bioweapon. This is the level of contradiction and confusion and, you know, deceit that is happening within the body politic inside the United States. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the idea is to leave a general impression of wrongdoing, of threat, of existential threat. And on that level, it has been very successful. And this is just one more drop in that bucket. Yeah, a part of the COVID denialist wing in, in society, which, you know, people made a lot of money promoting the idea that COVID was either not that bad or that it came from China or that the U.S. government and Anthony Fauci in particular, working with evil China in this Wuhan lab, they created it either, you know, by accident and then took advantage of the COVID to help their friends in the pharmaceutical industry or that they had this sort of nefarious, insidious effort. I mean, these are the kind of ideas that have gained traction in the absence of confidence in the U.S. health system. And there's a good reason why people wouldn't have confidence in the U.S. health system, since all the pharmaceuticals actually do care about is making money. They're capitalist corporations. And that makes them very, very vulnerable to being targeted as really the 
the force behind COVID, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the U.S. government has been very aware of this, this problem. When I was a kid, because there had been so much vaccine hesitancy around smallpox, and eventually smallpox was wiped out in the U.S., but when it came to getting rid of polio, which could be done by max vaccinations, the U.S. government created the March of Dimes, like a nonprofit organization to be the ones doing the immunizations or getting money for the immunizations, basically to try to answer those who think, well, the, if these are just drug companies trying to make a buck. So they had to overcome that kind of vaccine hesitancy. Now, in this era, like there's so much promotion of misinformation in the United States that say, unlike Cuba, where all Cubans are vaccinated, Cuba used its own vaccine technology, part of which, by the way, came from China in a collaboration. And there was no movement inside of Cuba that, you know, people thought this was a big conspiracy by the government. People wanted to get vaccinated and they were vaccinated. And that allowed Cuba to, in spite of all the economic difficulties, reopen tourism because there's no private capitalist pharmaceuticals or a government serving those kind of capitalist corporations in Cuba. So people just trust their, their medical system. So there's all of this room for promoting skepticism and conspiracy theories. But you're right, KJ, bottom line, whether it's liberals who are against China or right-wingers who are against China and Anthony Fauci, the bottom line is China ends up on the short end of the stick. Bottom line is China gets blamed. And I want to put this into a, to go back with you, because I know in addition to your own scientific work, scientific inquiry, and peer-reviewed articles, you're an expert on Asian geostrategic politics and global geostrategic politics. And I want to talk about where we're heading. You started this interview by saying you feel the U.S. is going to be at war with China, and relatively soon. I personally agree with that. I think the U.S. is actively preparing to have a military confrontation with China near China in the South China Sea or the East China Sea. In other words, over there, not over here. And the strategy is that this extreme pressure will be put on China militarily. The U.S. will try to assert military primacy, nuclear primacy. That's why it's ripping up and has ripped up all the nuclear arms limitation treaties. And that China won't dare escalate the conflict such that it would become a global sort of showdown between nuclear powers. And I think the Chinese feel, this is my assessment, I don't know, obviously, but this is my own assessment. I think China does feel that war is coming and that if the U.S. succeeds in its proxy war against Russia in Ukraine, that there will be an accelerating trend towards war. The timetable will be moved up. And you see the U.S. pumping weapons into Taiwan, the U.S. putting soldiers, training soldiers in Taiwan. Anyway, this is a big deal. We're witnessing a geostrategic shift. Now, I want to put this in historical perspective too, KJ, because in 2011, when Obama said, we need to pivot to Asia, when he said that when he was in Australia, and he said it a couple other times, nobody really knew what it meant. Was it going to be like, we're going to pivot towards working with China? Nobody could tell at first. But shortly thereafter, it became clear that the U.S. had a military pivot towards Asia. And, you know, 60% of U.S. 
naval and air forces were being put into the Pacific by 2020. That was all within a decade. Then you had in 2018, the, the Pentagon and its quadrennial report reorients military doctrine and strategy to prepare for what we are calling major power conflict, no longer the war on terrorism. And then you have all of these kind of provocations, developments towards war. Let's go back real quick before we get to the current era. The U.S. pivoted towards Asia in 1898. That's when it invaded the Philippines and a million Filipinos died. It pivoted to Asia, certainly with the dropping of the nuclear bombs. They didn't drop them in in Europe. They dropped them on Japan in August 1945. Five years later, the U.S. pivoted to Asia once again with the invasion of Korea. A huge, talk about a genocide. I mean, so many Koreans died. And then like six or seven years after the Korean War was over, the U.S. pivoted towards Vietnam. Each of these pivots towards Asia has been very awful for Asians. And again, it's in the era of imperialism, when the U.S. really becomes a full-scale global imperialist power starting around the turn of the century. Let's just go over some of that history. I think it's so important because... If we're just bouncing off of today's headlines and missing historical context, we don't really get the picture about what's going on or what might be going on very soon. I mean, this is a long global imperial project going back to the 19th century. You know, when the U.S. first waged war against Korea, this was in the 1880s, Uh, It forced Korea to sign a treaty opening it up. And at the treaty, they declared that the U.S. was a Pacific power, that the Pacific was the ocean bride of the United States, that Korea and these other countries were the bridesmaids. And this was where American power would reach its climax. It's shot through with sexual metaphors of, you know, male prowess. But the U.S. has always seen the domination of the Pacific as part of its imperial agenda. And so then we see this moving through the Philippines. We see this moving through, of course, Hawaii, and of course, through Korea, Vietnam, etc. But this specific pivot relates to the pivot to Asia declared in 2011, but really started to be prepared in 2008. And if you recall, in 2008, That was the global collapse of financial capitalism. What the U.S. did was it went to China with its hat in hand. Hank Paulson went multiple times and essentially asked for China to bail it out, which China obliged. And this was a mistake on the part of China, because when it did that, no good deed goes unpunished. China was always supposed to be this kind of subaltern to the U.S. economic capitalist system. It was supposed to be a low-wage workhouse. When China showed its resilience, robustness, and power to you know, withstand this global capitalist collapse, that sent shivers down you know, the halls of the White House, and they realized that China was not going to remain, you know, a economic subaltern. It was not going to collapse of its own accord because in general, the view had been that China had simply to incorporate into the U.S. system as a junior partner, or it was going to collapse like a 
Potemkin state like the USSR was. And so there was very much a collapsist thinking in US elite circles, most you know, clearly demonstrated by Gordon Chang and his multiple predictions. Every year predicts the collapse of China. But until that point, there were many China hawks, but they felt that China could be subjugated and exploited and extracted. And when China showed itself to be a legitimate pole of autonomous development, that is when the daggers came out. And we saw that very briefly, even before the pivot to Asia was declared, we saw the preparation for a war doctrine against China called air-sea battle. Air-sea battle was the transposition of the war doctrine against the Soviet Union air-land battle, but amplified and retailored for war against the next major competitor, China, with a focus on you know uh, sea, naval, and air coordination. And so we started to see the preparation of air-sea battle the pivot to Asia. And the pivot to Asia also came with a doctrine of economic war, economic exclusion, which was called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which was you know, vetoed by Trump, but that was also part of it. And so it came with multiple arms of escalation. And of course, the understanding that China was the greatest threat to U.S. global hegemony, which they had planned out since 1992 with the Project for a New American Century. And therefore, China needed to be encircled and taken down by any means necessary, but primarily through information war, through military encirclement, through political pressure, through economic enclosure and expulsion, and an entire panoply of measures were prepared, uh, starting with a slowly increasing drumbeat of demonization against China. Yeah, I think the U.S. expected when it incorporated China into the World Trade Organization that this was going to be win-win for the U.S. government and the U.S. capitalist class, because this is, I think, how they looked at China, KJ. They looked at China as having this vast pool of low-wage labor. And profit in the capitalist system is derived by paying workers less in the form of wages than the value they create when they go to work, especially collectively, in factories. And the owners of the factories keep the surplus, the surplus value, the value greater than the value that they've paid in the form of wages or machinery or raw materials. And so by opening up, as China did in the late 1980s, it created this vast reservoir of potential low-wage labor, and capitalism really took off. I mean, I think part of the exuberance in Western capitals was the opening of China, because they thought, now we can not only employ Chinese labor, create exports, bring them back to the United States, the prices will be lower because wages will be lower. The new technologies of shipping and transport and communication make all of this possible. This is the new stage of globalization. And by creating a capitalist class inside of China through the opening of private businesses that were operating alongside the state-run enterprises, that eventually the capitalists in China would prefer to link up with the 
capitalists in the West and they would topple the government in China and the Chinese Communist Party would basically go the way of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, that it would be toppled by the forces of internal counter-revolution aided by Western imperialism. I think that was the second part of the premise. So it was win-win. We get access to Chinese markets, to Chinese labor, and ultimately we're going to overthrow the Communist Party. One of the ironies, KJ, is that China got stronger as a result of being integrated into the world economy. The Chinese Communist Party maintained control over the government, and it didn't turn China into a neo-colonial vassal. China got access to technology, which it would absolutely not have had access to in the old days because the U.S. would embargo and sanction it and blockade it the way the U.S. does to Cuba and Venezuela. And then they were able to develop and use that technology to sort of develop their own economy and not let American or West European capitalism or Japanese capitalism take over politically or economically. So the U.S. thought, win-win, we're going to take over China and in the process get very, very rich. And China will basically end up as a neocolony. And what I think Obama signaled geostrategically with this pivot to Asia was a a recognition, at least at that time, by some sector of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, that this was a fantasy, that China was not going to be overthrown, that the Chinese Communist Party was going to strengthen its hand. And in fact, in 2013, with the ascension of Xi Jinping as the leader of the party and the reaffirmation of China's socialist quest, its socialist goals, that the U.S., was actually an empire weakening, 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 and its rival, China, was going to be completely independent. Not that China was promoting global revolution or world revolution or world communism. It was, you know, basically carrying out a nationalistic foreign policy, but it was an independent government. It couldn't be subjugated by the U.S. It couldn't be subsumed by the U.S. And so I think this is the recognition by the U.S. that they have to go to war with China because the other ways, the ways they thought would be the undoing of China are not going to work. The irony, KJ, is that while the U.S. pivoted away from wars that Obama considered the U.S. to be bogged down in, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and endless war in the Middle East, not only did China still get stronger, but China has, in fact, pivoted back to the Middle East And where the U.S. dominated this oil resource-rich region for more than a half century, far more than a half century, China is now becoming a major player. And I'm sure you saw that the Chinese were the hosts for a reconciliation, detente, rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And the U.S. was nowhere there at the table. I mean, you know, history is filled with all kinds of ironies. But when you look at U.S.-China relations I don't think you can match it in terms of the number of ironies. Anyway, your thoughts. Correct. Full of ironies, full of contradictions, and full of self-delusions. You're absolutely correct. The U.S. engaged with China, not because it was trying to develop China, but it was trying to exploit it and undermine it. It acknowledges, Foreign Policy magazine acknowledges that its engagement with China was a regime 
change project. It was a soft regime change project, but a regime change project nonetheless. And that did not happen. You know, despite the best efforts of Soros and the NED and the US allied, you know, NGO systems, they were not able to create the level of corruption and, you know, dismemberment that they had imposed on the Soviet Union. And for those who think that China turned capitalist, all you have to do is compare the two countries. You do not see in China the same phenomena that you saw in the USSR or in Russia. That is what you would expect to see if there had been a real counter-revolution, which is, say, a mass immiseration of the population, a shortage, you know, a destruction of, you know, the life expectancy, all of those things that capitalism brings. You did not see that in China. And so although China did adopt elements of a market-based economy, it was using it in order to develop itself, in order to create the kind of wealth and productive capacity that it needed to continue to move forward as an independent civilizational state. I think it's also very, very important to note that although we have had, you know, scores of countries become quote unquote independent from, you know, the colonial West, uh, they have in one way or another continued to remain paracolonial states, neocolonial states. And the proof of that is that of the formerly colonized countries, only about half a dozen have actually reached developed country status. And two of them are, well, one of them isn't even a country because it's Taiwan Island, which is part of China. The other is South Korea. These are really capitalist show ponies that were given extraordinary privileges and raised in a hothouse so that they could be paraded as some kind of example of capitalist success when actually they were, you know, very, very artificial constructs. And then you have a few, you know, petrostates, which are strongly under Western influence. And then you have some small microstates that are you know, financial havens. So really the record of countries breaking out of this imperial colonial yoke is quite extraordinary. And I think the best, you know, kind of example is to understand that when China started opening up to the West, its per capita GDP was about the same as Haiti. And all you have to do is compare where Haiti is right now under this continued neocolonial regime, as opposed to China, which asserted its own sovereignty and its own right to develop and see the extraordinary wealth and the extraordinary development that China has undergone in order to understand, you know, the fundamental aspects of how China differs and how China broke from Western control. And it's absolutely contract because China did this, because it refused to be a subaltern to the global imperial capitalist order. And because it is not only the threat of a good example, but also a developing gravitational force for multipolar, pluripolar development that other countries can follow. That is why the US is dead set dead set on taking China down. 
As we start to move close to the, the end point here, I want to mention one phenomena that I know you'll agree with this in terms of why the U.S. is an empire that is beset with crisis and seemingly unsolvable crisis. Not only does the U.S. make big mistakes, like the invasion of Vietnam, but no one is held to account. The invasion of Iraq, big mistake. I mean, a crime, but also a mistake from the point of view of the empire. No one's held to account. Bush didn't go to jail. Cheney didn't go to jail. Rumsfeld. They're all like, there's no punishment. There's no holding to account. So it's easy to make the same mistakes over and over again. And in fact, the hothouse environment politically in the U.S. of the U.S. media and the U.S. Congress, which is an imperial Congress, it's so rabidly pro-war that if anybody actually says, let's learn the lesson of Iraq, let's not do this again, they'll suffer political consequences because they'll be determined to be too weak. So nobody does it. It's easier and better for American politicians just stay with this sort of, we're not going to learn anything. Nobody can teach us anything. There are no lessons to be learned. And we can keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And by the same thing, I mean the exercise of hubris and arrogance. Just think about it. Here is the U.S. Obama came in, new face, new political leader. He says, let's end the war in Iraq. And the U.S. actually tried to do that. And Obama said, let's pivot towards Asia. And Obama said, instead of being preoccupied with confrontation in the Middle East, let's have a nuclear arms agreement with Iran and start to normalize relations with Iran. So here's these little shoots of sort of a reasonable foreign policy. And Trump comes in and he rips it all up. He says, oh, it was the worst deal ever. But Trump is removed after four years or loses after four years. Biden comes in. Biden is Obama's vice president. So presumably he would want to follow Obama's policy towards Iran. But instead, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go back. There's still not a nuclear arms deal after Trump ripped it up. Instead of coming back and trying to find cooperation in the Middle East, it's just threats it's arrogance, it's hubris. When it comes to China, the U.S., you know, here's Biden announcing, explaining, you know, sort of embracing the idea that the U.S. couldn't win in Afghanistan against the Taliban. And so he had to leave after 20 years and the Taliban becomes the government. But now Biden is like, yeah, no, let's get ready for war with China. Yeah, we can't defeat the Taliban, but let's do it. And if he said anything other than that, if he said, let's go back and be friends with China, He'd get roasted. So Biden, as an opportunist politician, would prefer to be like this hardline hawk. So all of these, this arrogance and hubris becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy for more and more mistakes. Now the biggest mistake of all is on the table, a real confrontation with the biggest countries and the biggest nuclear powers in the world. And you would think in the U.S. that there's no possible way the U.S. could lose a war with China. That's the language and the, the atmosphere. And that's one of the things that I think is like when you look at empires and the decline of empires and empires that are also not just in decline, but empires that end up being toppled by revolutions domestically, it's oftentimes not only the internal decay, but the hubris and arrogance of the existing ruling elites 
who believe that God's destiny requires them to rule forever. And so their hubris and arrogance keeps having them make the same mistake over and over again. Anyway, that's a big picture kind of thing. But I want to give you the last word on this, KJ, because it seems to me China is preparing for war. I think the Chinese are absolutely preparing for war. And we, the people in the United States, have to recognize that there really could be a war based on arrogance and hubris. And it's also incumbent on us, if we care, if we care about ourselves, our communities, our, our children, if we care about our grandchildren, the thing that we should be trying to do first and foremost is avoid, prevent hubris and arrogance from a government that speaks in our name, driving things towards major power conflict with, with China and Russia. So the urgency of this is great. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that part of the struggle here is to tell the truth. Part of the struggle here is to provide context and history and rationality to the discourse, which currently is completely absent from the mainstream. Anyway, you get the last word. As I said, once again, we're very, very close to war because we have such extraordinary lies being pumped out daily. And the farther we are detached from the truth, the closer we become to war. But you're absolutely correct in that this kind of extraordinary hubris, this extraordinary blindness, and this extraordinary, I would say, sense of entitlement that drives this notion that the U.S. has to have global hegemony, that it is the U.S.'s entitlement. I think that geopolitical and ideological self-indoctrination is what is driving us to war. And it is, it is so detached from reality that it is a form of insanity. You know, going back to the Greeks, you know, they said that who the gods would destroy, they first drive insane. Well, we see this insanity, the constant, not only the repetition of wars and the constant repetition of failure, but the constant increase in ambition. You know, the greater your failure, the greater your ambition. You get kicked out of Afghanistan by a small group of, you know, guerrilla fighters. And so now you're going to take on not only one, but two of the greatest, most powerful nuclear-armed countries on the planet. This is extraordinary in its irrationality, its detachment, complete detachment from reality. And that's why I think we have to, all of us, work incredibly hard, put our, really put our shoulders to the wheel and try and bring a little bit of sanity back into the political discourse and to resist every point, you know, this escalation to war. And I think this coming March on March 18th is going to be uh, really, really important in that regard. I agree. 20th anniversary of the Iraq war, people in Washington, D.C. and San Francisco, Los Angeles, other cities mobilizing to say no to endless wars, to say yes, to meet, use money to meet human needs, not the war machine. And again, no war with China. KJ No, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 